Welcome to My Way, a podcast that shares the stories of people who are doing life their way. Listen along as we explore what works, what doesn't, and the experience that happens no matter which path we choose. I'm your host, Sunny Collins. Thanks for listening. Sunny here. Welcome to episode eight of My Way. This is part one of my conversation with fellow Graytonian and wildlife vet, Dr. Michael Koch. We had such a rich conversation that I'm posting it in three parts. So stay tuned over the next couple of weeks for part two and three. You won't want to miss any of it. Thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation I had with Mike in his back garden with his entourage of wild birds. My name is Dr. Michael Koch. I live in Grayton. Um, Yeah, that's me. So, first question is, what brought you to Grayton? I was working in Botswana, and um, I left Botswana having been away from South Africa for, I will say, 46 years, because I grew up in Zimbabwe, and didn't come back to South Africa, wouldn't have come back to South Africa until after 94, because of all the issues with apartheid, so... I finished a job in Botswana, and that was in 1999, and I drove across the border at Ramatlabarma, which is up in the south part of Botswana, and I drove down to the Cape because my mom was born in Cape Town, and I have cousins and uncles, and I uh, spent six weeks driving around the Western Cape looking for a house to buy because I had a bit of money, I just gone through a divorce, and... and um, yeah, and I looked, and, and, and I was at the other side of the mountains here, the Fierce Under Red, in McGregor, and almost bought a house there. And then I thought, well, I've got one more place to look at, and that's great. And I drove into Grayton one rainy morning, and there was a bat-eared fox on the road that stared at me. And, and I drove into Grayton, and I went, wow. And I looked at five houses. I had a budget. <laughs> Bust the budget and bought the fifth. And that was 16 years ago. And how has the place changed, in your opinion, from the first year you were here until now? Hasn't you know? It hasn't changed a huge amount in terms of the physical village. The village has got a common a common area outside and a nature reserve and stuff like that. So when I came here, there were a lot of plots. Most of those plots are gone now. There's still some left. Um, houses have stayed the same because some of them are very old from the 1800s. Um, some are not so old, and there's obviously ones that have been built very recently. What has happened in the time that I've been here is that there's a throughput of people. So things change. Uh, yeah, so they change, and, uh, you know, I have a core of friends, and people move on, people die, you know, as we all, all get older. And, um, yeah, but it's still essentially the same. I mean, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a kind of cocoon that we live in here because yeah. uh, and I have a little bit of a problem with it. Um, but it, you know, I'm very choosy who I spend time with, and you know, I have a house and I spend a lot of time walking the mountains and stuff like that. And and um, so it's great to live here and, and have your house and, and you know, and the sun seems to shine all the time and the views are beautiful. But I do get into strong arguments with people about you know the village being kind of unchanged in terms of this rainbow nation that we live in. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think one of the worst things that ever happened to this village was the retirement village we built. Really? Um, Ooh, that is a uh, very controversial statement. Uh, so, and, and when I see people <laughs> in their whites bowling on the bowling green and I see a move now to put a croquet lawn in, I think that we don't have our priorities quite right. So 
Yeah, and I mean, I think that the um, retirement village is funny. Everyone has to retire, but it's kind of a, like a little fenced Joburg retirement home because it's got an electric fence around it, which I can't even imagine why it has. But listen, there's some great people here, and there's there's a lot younger. Look at yourselves. Mm-hmm. And 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 I, I will tell you one thing that has changed. We have more people who are involved in environmental and conservation and photographic stuff than we've had before. And I know I've attracted a couple, um, in, in, including the bags. The bags. Right? And um, she talked about that in her interview. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And uh, and so so we have we have younger people, smart, clever, innovative, visionary. Um, but we also have people who are a bit uh, ankylosed and insular and don't want to see the village change. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, 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 my feeling is that with the things that are going on in South Africa now, you know, issues about land and inequality and stuff like that, we have a village, as a village have to be very, very careful because, as you know, we had riots uh, last year. Yeah. Um, the market was burnt down. And, 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 and so under this beauty and this natural sort of environment, which it is, you know, you just look at the, the beautiful Cape Flower Kingdom that surrounds us here, we're not necessarily focusing on some of the really important things that we we need to address. I do know there's lots of people in this village who feel the same way as I do. If you could envision a harmonious, um, sustainable, functional Grayton, what would that look like? It would be a, a, a rainbow village. So it would be a village that has people from diverse cultures, different ideas and stuff like that. And, and, and I mean, I'll give you an example. I mean, it, was, it was just great when the brewer who now does the brewery at Potter's Bar, who's a Zimbabwe, Tatenda, uh-huh. black Zimbabwe, um, moved into the village. And we've only had, since I've been here in 16 years, we've had one or two black folks, some of the stories are really tragic, um, who've come into the village, but they've not lasted. Um, and it would be absolutely beautiful if we suddenly found this village kind of balanced um, in terms of, of people and, and, and talking to people and discussing things and, and creating sustainability. I mean, you know, we have we have a great transition town and this mm-hmm. and that, you know, but but I think we need we need to be seen transforming and integrating because otherwise things are not going to get easier in South Africa, you know, unless we are proactive. Right. But even with a land issue, we have to be proactive. If we take lessons from Zimbabwe, um, if we aren't, then we're going to have things forced upon ourselves. And, um, you know, we all know inequality and poverty and stuff create social unrest and, and, and the issues that happened here with the rights. Yeah, we're all related to the land, you know, and unless we address those, we, 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 um, we have trouble. So we can't sit here and, 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 and hide in that cocoon. We have to get out of the cocoon and we have to get away from a near colonial type. The history of Southern Africa, not just South Africa. I mean, if you look at the history of Zimbabwe and Rhodesia, where I grew up, you know, and um, there's lots of ex-Rhodesians who live in this village, uh, ex-Zimbabweans, you want to call it. But um, and I, I remember going through the same issues there as we're 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 going through here, you know, in terms of attitudes. Look, there's some wonderful people and good people and stuff. But, right. But we do we do have people who tend to look inwardly and 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 want to make sure they're not fine. Right. And. Um, I think that's a big mistake. Yeah. The other funny thing is too is that when I when I tell people I live in an African village, it's true. Like this is literally an African village. But for Americans, that's not what they think yeah. of. They're like there's a lot of white people in your African village. It's funny, it's funny how I had you. I remember when I was married. You know, when I married my second wife, and um, I was in California, 
they, my, my wife told some people that, you know, I was marrying this African guy. Where you could see them when they saw me, they went, <laughs> Okay, so when and where were you born? I was born in South Africa, in Benoni. Um, I think my brother and I kind of joked that maybe we were in the same, same cot or next to a cot next to Charlie's, but they're uh, on. But, uh, <laughs> right. But uh, anyway, she was born in Benoni as well. Um, they were born in Benoni, but we, we only lived, well, my two, two brothers, so there's three brothers. Um, I was one year old when we left to go to Rhodesia. And that was all related to apartheid. So, you know, okay. very difficult too. My father was very, very broad-minded individual and he would have been stuck in jail very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so with, with the two brothers, and then my younger brother was born in Bulaway in Zimbabwe. So we moved, we moved north. Um, and then I basically grew up there, you know, before things started going awry in Zimbabwe um, or Rhodesia, you know, with the war, and we left and then we went. What is your first memory? First memory? I remember, you know, we lived, we lived outside Harare, which was Salisbury. We went to a school that was probably about an hour from where we lived. We lived down outside on Enterprise Road. And my father was a hard taskmaster, so the, the boys all had to cycle to school. He used to drive across a car and hoot him, you know. <laughs> and, and, and a memory of growing up in Zimbabwe as a kid, because we would take off with our satchels and cycle. But, you know, all, all the folks cycling on those roads are black Zimbabweans with their bikes. Some of them are fancy bikes. You know how they put these little clips on them. And, I, and, and my memory was that you always wanted to race, race us. So we would, we, and of course, you know, we were young, but we were kind of proud. So we, so we would arrive at the, the school, you know, the class was absolutely exhausting. <laughs> then I'd sometimes forget my sports clothes, and then I'd have to cycle back home and come back. So that's an abiding memory. But I guess, you know, the other abiding memories is, is just, um, and because I'm involved in wildlife now, is, is my father took us down to Monopools National Park. And this would have been in the, in the late 50s and 60s. Eh? And that was, it was hardly developed. Eh? Hardly developed. And so we went down camping. And as youngsters, we got exposed to the bush. My father was involved in some wildlife stuff as well. And uh, that was sort of the beginning of a love of, of the bush and love of wild landscapes, but big wildlife landscapes. And just nature, you know, and its rawness. Mm. Uh, this episode of My Way has been brought to you by Inequality. Whenever you're wondering how we got here as a global society, remember Inequality. A simple concept overall, Inequality is the state of being unbalanced. Whether you're talking about the notably high Palmer ratio of South Africa, or too much trouble and not enough base, Inequality is all around us. From the process of osmosis at a cellular level to the hydrostatic equilibrium that governs our solar system, the very nature of our existence is to fight against inequality. In humans, inequality manifests in the idea that your color, race, ethnicity, gender, religion, age, geography, or any combo of the above will determine your employment opportunity earning potential, food security, and access to information, education, clean water, healthcare, and basic human rights. Nelson Mandela said, as long as poverty, injustice, and gross inequality persist in our world, none of us can truly rest. Uh, you talked about your dad, uh, but maybe just talk about your your family growing up in general, your siblings, your mom. 
Yeah, well, so my, my, my dad was born in Rustenburg from an Afrikaner family. Um, my mom was born in Cape Town, um, originally from the kind of Scottish family who came out. My father's side was Dutch-Danish. If you look at my name, K-O-C-K. They obviously were born in South Africa and, and grew up here right through apartheid and, until we were born, and then the decision was made to move. So so we moved to um, to Zimbabwe and um, grew up there. Then, you know, then, then in, in, in those times, particularly 1960, and then it, as the 70s came along, it was a war that started. So my parents took us and we went to England. Finished education in England, and then I went to America. And I was in America for eight years, and then I was terribly homesick all the time. And I remember, I, I remember going. There was there was a, a famous cinema in Sacramento, in California, and they used to have great films. I can't mm. remember the name of it now, but and I don't know if you've ever seen the film Gods Must Be Crazy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and that came, and I tell you what, I think I saw it twelve times because it stayed. It broke all records. Wow. Because it was so, I mean, it was so funny. I mean, yeah, I, love La- it was I, lo- funny. I love Land Rovers and stuff. And I mean, yeah. the Land Rover scenes in that film were just hilarious. And, and so anyway, I mean, I, I wanted to come back to Africa. Yeah. This is what I did from California. Yeah. And um, was married and came back to Zimbabwe. Yeah. And so brothers, I have two brothers. I have an older brother called Egmont. So Egmont's Stephanus Cock. So, you know, he's Egmont. You remember there's a mountain in New Zealand called Mount Egmont. And then there's an overture okay. called the Egmont Overture. So then I'm the middle middle boy, and so I'm Michael David. My uh, younger brother is Richard Anthony. So okay. he, you know, and my older brother's uh, two years older than me. My younger brother's three years younger. Yeah. So they 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 live in England. Uh-huh. As my mom does. Okay. My father's not alive, and they have lived and worked in England for many many years. And they come out regularly um, to to Africa, to South Africa, or Kenya, or places like that. You know. So there's still still a strong attachment. Of course, my mom's brothers still alive. My mom's 89. My my uncles are a couple of years younger than her. Okay. Uh, they live just down the road here, George, um, Mosselback, and um, my cousins live in Cape Town. And how old are you? I'm 65. So did you have any heroes or role models when you were growing up? Well, you know, I, I used to write, love reading Ryder Haggard, okay, and also Lorenz van der Post. Mm-hmm. Ryder Haggard, because I just loved his Stories which were kind of Southern Africa and Africa, you know, whether it was she and I can't even remember the other ones, but they, they, they were great, great for a kid to read these, you know, because you can imagine. And then Lorenz van der Post, I know he's quite a controversial person when he died, but he's an extremely good writer. And I just loved his stuff that he produced on the, the, the Sand Bushman, you know, because that, 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 he was uh, tasked by the BBC, I think, in the 1950s to do an expedition when the first Land Rovers came out. Oh, series one. Wow. Uh, and drove through, this would be 1958, I think, 59. Wow, okay. And then he went and visited the Sedilla Hills, you know, where all these uh, Bushman paintings are. Mm-hmm. And I think four or 5,000 there. And there's a classic panel there called the Van, the Van der Post panel, which has got England and something else in But they produced a BBC documentary on it. It was called The Lost, uh, Lost World of Kalahari. Okay. So they produced a documentary, and then he subsequently put two books together. Um, that were, were, were fictional, but around Bushman culture and stuff. Wonderful, wonderful books. Um, yeah. And he just had an amazing a view of, of the wilderness and how important it is to us. And I guess he was he was into Carl Jung, um, Jungian thought and stuff like that. That person influenced me because he wrote about real things and then also fiction. Yeah. And I read a lot. I mean, I, I enjoy reading. Mm-hmm. What are you reading right now? 
I am reading, I've just finished reading a book on um, the formation of Islam. Oh, wow. And okay. on, in, it's all about antiquity. So it's, it's, it's from the Romans, from Greeks to the Romans, and then the Persians, and then how that whole area where Syria, where they're fighting now. Um, mm. You know, and you had all these different kind of religious, before it was kind of a single God religion, you know, there were all these sort of, there were still pagans around. And then, but it's, it's about the transition and it kind of ends off when, when Islam starts because, I mean, when Islam got going, I mean, they, they conquered a whole lot of that Middle East area, you know, and um, so it talks about Jerusalem and, look, I'm not religious, yeah. but I read a lot about Christianity and about Islam yeah, and, me too. and, and about the Middle East and um, because, you know, I'm very critical of a lot of things about that. I'm, I, I have a real hard time with religion, mm. but, but I can't do it just because I believe it, you know, I need to read. And, and I tell you what, you read the stuff and you can see, you can see why people attach to something like this and yeah. then it grows, you know, and, uh, yeah. and I hate to call it brainwashing, but it, it's, it's a very powerful, it's a very powerful medium. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I like books, but I also read newspapers. You know, I, I read the financial times mm-hmm. weekend, which I tell you what, the, I, I, I don't like their kind of highfalutin, approach with some things and it's all about money and this and that but some of the journalism is so sharp like this week's one is a thing on um, can america go it alone and it's about trump and his isolationism but it's just extremely well written and then there's another article i'm just reading at the moment about a cashless society so you know are, are we heading to a cashless society so I, I i often read it from cover to cover i i'm a great believer in being as well informed as i can because if you're going to debate things and argue things, and I just love accumulating knowledge. Mm-hmm. Talk about your education. Okay, so so I was educated in, in, in Zim, and you know, and it's quite apparent if you meet Zimbabweans around how good the education is there, and that's something that Mugabe, despite his shenanigans, um, maintained in Zimbabwe. So I, I got a good education, and then went to the UK, and my father got us into a very very old public school. And so all three brothers went through the school. It was amazing because I went from being having worn nothing but short pants and arriving in England and having, having never ever seen snow, let alone a snowflake, and, you know, uh, being barefoot for most of my childhood growing up. And I had to wear pinstripes, stiff collars, and boaters. Yeah, so that so was called King's Canterbury, um, which is where, in fact, that's where Anglicanism. Anglicanism started mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Canterbury Cathedral. So I go from, from being this bushman into this environment and oh, the fights I used to get into and stuff, particularly with townsfolk because, you know, the school's in, in the cathedral. You know, my brothers and I, we never brooked any nonsense, but of course we were seen as poofters because, you know, we fancy with our boaters and stuff like that. So I was always getting in fights. And, but education was great. So I, I did that and... and Finished my schooling, applied for vet school. Always wanted to be a, a, a veterinary surgeon. In fact, always wanted to work with wildlife, but that came later. And I went to vet school. I went to the Royal Vet College in London. And interestingly enough, my younger brother is also a vet. Oh. And he is also involved in wildlife. And he was a Cambridge University graduate. He's now a professor, very high-powered professor at the Royal Vet College. So, yeah, so I qualified as a vet, but I only stayed in, 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 in England for two years. And then I went to America. Pennsylvania and California, and I stayed in California for eight years, a wonderful time there. Got the most amazing postgraduate education, I think they're second to none. When I was in California, I, I did this two-year training program in wildlife. 
do wildlife medicine. And that two years started my career as a wildlife veterinarian, which when, when I left uh, California to mm-hmm. return, returned to Zimbabwe, mm-hmm. and the rest is history. So being a wildlife, so I've been a veterinary surgeon, mm. but been uh, specialised in wildlife. I've been a vet for over 40 years and specialised in wildlife for 38. And my younger brother is doing exactly the same thing. He's more involved in wildlife health and emerging diseases type stuff, and I do a lot of community work and, and catching and chasing elephants and runners and stuff like that. I'm just wondering, since your your brother's also a wildlife vet, what about your upbringing do you think spurred that on? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, you know, because we, we, we always lived outside town and we always lived in the bush. And I mean, I remember we used to cycle back from school and the first thing I'd do is throw my bike. My mom wouldn't see me. I'd get the dogs and I'd disappear into the bush. You know, and I'd spend an hour messing around with the dogs. And, you know, my father really enjoyed the bush. So he used to take us on these trips. And, and um, you know, when I left Africa, it was really a wrench for me. I think it was a wrench for the whole family, you know, and it was kind of political, so we, we really had no choice. But I always, always yearned for for the wild areas and the wild landscapes. And, you know, when I went to America, you know, Africa's not the only place with wild areas, you know. And, right. and you know, if you go around the globe, as you will well know. Mm. You know, and so when I was in California, I mean, I actually worked during this residency training program, I worked with Cal Fish and Game a lot because old Prof Fowler always encouraged his 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 residents to um, kind of pursue what they like to do. So I was free-ranging, big landscape person, not zoo or exotics or anything like that. And so I worked with Cal Fish and Game, and I worked all over California. Flew with my first helicopters, you know, flew in the White Mountains catching big old sheep in the Sierra Nevadas, down in the, the, the Mojave Desert, you know, and, and, and just... Beautiful, beautiful. You know, come come summer or come winter. So so you know when I started doing my wildlife stuff, that kind of desire to be part of the wilderness, which Lorenz van der Post in some of his books just highlights beautifully. So it's always been part of me. So so my growing up and being exposed to to wildlife and big wild wild areas, you know, whether it be the Zambezi Valley or Lake Kriba, mm-hmm. uh, which is a fabulous part of the world, and Zimbabwe is a fabulous country, you know, and to keep with wildlife areas. Still very, very wild. You know. mm-hmm. Down in South Africa, you know, you've got a Kruger, great place, but, you know, they get a million visitors. And, and, and so so I've always been an individual who would rather be in, in these big landscapes that are virtually untouched, you know. Um, and I've always been like that. If I hadn't got into vet school, I would probably would have done zoology, but I decided that new medicine was for me. Yeah. And that, yeah, I mean, getting a foot in the door, you know, having that degree then enabled me to get my foot in the door and you know, I mean, basically work in wild areas, you know, mm-hmm. all over Africa, in fact, around the world. Um, but I tell students now that, you know, get an education, you know, and don't expect things to happen immediately. But if you have enough passion and enough of a dream, go for it because the world really is your oyster. Mm. You know? But if you don't have those bits and pieces with you, you know, that you can compete with other people, you're not going to realize your dream. Thanks for joining me for part one of my conversation with wildlife vet Michael Cock. Join me next time for part two as we talk more about the challenges of being a wildlife vet, including his best and worst days on the job. Don't forget to follow at Podcast Cowgirl on Facebook and Instagram for photos and updates associated with our two podcasts, My Way and Lecker Y'all. 
If you have any ideas for folks we should have on the show, email us at podcastcowgirl at gmail.com. And a special thanks to Reese Bennett in Tampa, Florida for reading our sponsorship ad.